Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. seated and as you're taking your seats if you turn in your bulletins there you've got the entirety of 2nd Samuel chapter 7 uh, they're printed for you or if you want to turn in your Bibles you may do so as well uh, today we come to a portion of scripture that's absolutely gorgeous 2nd Samuel chapter 7 this morning I will read just a, a half of the text We'll say the second half, Lord willing, for next week. So let's give our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, reading down to verse 17. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now when the king lived in his house, the king being David, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. 
I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, not if, but when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your thrones shall be established forever." And in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Sudden changes. Whether it's weather, whether it's someone's tone of voice, whether it's your your health, Sudden changes make us or should make us pause. They should make us take notice. They should make us pay attention. I think of the sudden change of weather. I mean, you're outside on a beautiful sunny day. The sky's just blue and it's gorgeous. And then all of a sudden you start to see the trees move. And then you start seeing the dark clouds roll in. And that's a a word of warning, right? You probably ought to get inside or you're about to get doused. I think about a change in someone's tone. I was mentioning this this morning. I had a conversation with a brother in Christ via FaceTime about a month ago. And we were talking about troubling things and some things that he was having to go through. And the conversation was going, even though we were talking about tough things, it was going well. And then all of a sudden, his tone changed. And out he spews words, and his facial features look different. Just for a fleeting moment, and then he flipped back. And I already knew he's going through struggles. But that just impressed upon me all the more. Take notice, he's really going through struggles. I, I think about health changes. You know, you're, you're going along, you're, you're used to your health rhythms, right? Your norm, the normal way things are for you, and then all of a sudden, something changes. Something's different. And, and, and due to the contrast or due to the suddenness, you pause. You pay attention. You think, and you think, maybe I need to get this checked out. And you do. Sometimes these sudden changes are warnings and we need to take note, we need to pay attention. Sometimes sudden changes come in like a, a breath of fresh air. and They are pick-me-ups. I, you know, just think about the, the illustration of, uh, it's your birthday. And children, you, you don't understand this experience right now. Some older ones of us, maybe we do, or maybe you do. But, but it just doesn't seem like anybody's noticed. You go through the day and you think, okay, nobody's really paying much attention to this. And you, you, you're going home early 
and you're not necessarily anticipating anybody being there, and you kind of glum, and you go, and you put your key into the door knob, and you turn, and you turn the knob, and you go in, and all of a sudden you hear what? Happy birthday from a room full of people! And you hear noisemakers going off, and your countenance changes. Sudden change. That's an encouragement. I say all that to tell you, when we come to this text, it is a sudden change. If we hadn't had the long break for COVID-19 and everything else, we would have felt the weight of this change even more. We have been in First and Second Samuel for some length of time, and you know it's story after story after story. Action-packed story after action-packed story. Plot-driven narratives or maybe character-driven narratives and action, 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 story after... And that's what we're expecting. And then all of a sudden we get to chapter 7. It's like somebody just slammed on the brakes. It's a sudden change. Uh, one commentator put it this way. The narrative pace slows to a crawl. And instead of action, what do we have? we have a banquet of words. Words. And really, when you look at this chapter, and if we had read it in its entirety, what we have are two short speeches followed by two long speeches. Just a bunch of words, not much action. But oh, how glorious the words are. And the sudden change from all those action-packed stories to speeches should cause us to pause and pay attention. We should also pay attention if we have been following or if we know something of the, the, the sort of the history of God's people up to this point. When we come to chapter 7, particularly the speech of the Lord that I read there, when we look at that speech, that's the longest direct speech of the words of Almighty God that we have in the history of God's people between this time and all the way back to the time of Moses at Mount Sinai. So we have a lot of speeches to Moses at Mount Sinai. Then we don't have a whole lot. We have words here and there. But then we come to 2 Samuel 7 and we get this long speech. And that should cause us to pay attention. Something momentous is happening here. And then thirdly, we should pay close attention. If you've read anything about this chapter, you, you know there have been books and books and books and books and books and books written about this. Written about what? God covenanting with His people. God stepping in and entering into a relationship with sinful human beings, a relationship of grace. He's done it right with Adam and Eve after the fall. He entered into a covenant relationship with Noah, did he not? One of grace. He enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham, one of grace. He enters into a covenant relationship with a nation through Moses, a covenant of grace. And there, here in this text, he's doing it again. He's not throwing out the old, he's building upon it. He's expanding it. He's giving us more information, clarifying it, and focusing in on His dealings with mankind now, not so much with a nation in its entirety, but with a king of such a nation, with an individual, with an individual. And all that said, pointing, of course, 
to Jesus Christ. And so all that should tell us, stop and pay attention. So we're going to pay attention to this text. As we already have started, we're going to continue. And I want you to look at this text, and I want you to appreciate and understand this, this wonderful covenant of grace. But I want you not so much to focus on the covenant, but let's focus together upon the God of the covenant. Uh, I don't know who I first heard it from. Uh, either it was Todd Pruitt or Carl Truman or somebody else. But I remember, and it stood out to me that they were talking, and it was in a podcast, and they were saying that the first application of any tax ought to be this. Behold your God. Christian, behold your God. This text tells you about your God. And if you're not a Christian, this text will tell you about a God, the God, who can be your God if by grace you place your faith and trust in Jesus. So let's behold our God in this text. And when we do, what do we behold? Or what sort of uh, attributes do we, are, are we, is our attention called to? What about the God do we see in this text? Three things, at least. We see His wisdom. We see His humility, or I'll even say humiliation. And we see His grace. We, we behold a God who is above us in wisdom. We behold a God who in humility is with us. And we behold a God who in grace is for us. Above us, with us, for us. Let's dive in. The God above us, verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5. He's, he's the God of perfect wisdom. Just notice verse 2. 2 and 3. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I mean, if I had been there, and David is there, and he's got his palace now, a nice house, and he's convicted, isn't he? He's looking at his house. He sees the tent that they had basically set up for the ark, the symbolic throne or footstool of Almighty God upon earth, and he feels guilty. I've got this great place to live, and there's the ark of God in a tent. I want to build a temple for God's ark, for God, for my God. And Nathan says, that's a wonderful idea. Go do all that's in your heart. It makes sense. It's reasonable. It sounds appropriate. It sounds righteous. Good thinking. God's with you. Go do it. And God then says, Whoa! Ho, 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 hold on! Don't we kind of understand that sort of thing? You go through life and you face all kinds of things, all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of problems in God's providence. And God's blessed you and He's blessed you with a mind. He's blessed you with brothers and sisters. He's blessed you with His Word. And you seek uh, through the principles of God's Word to live your life in a way that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. And you think, okay, what would be honoring and pleasing to the Lord? And let me try to seek to do that. And you come up with a good idea. And you might even share it with a pal, a friend. It's a great idea, go do it. The Lord's with you. 
and yet you haven't gone to whom? To the Lord. I am reminded of that beautiful passage of Scripture given by God through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. From Nathan and David's limited perspective, it seemed a good thing to build a house for the Lord. And to do it right then. But dear ones, their, their view, their perspective was limited. And they hadn't sought God's. And God's plan was far grander, far more beautiful, far more lasting. But that same night, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, basically, no. Ain't happening with you. I got a better plan. God's wisdom is always greater than ours. Let's seek it. Behold your God, God the all-wise and above us. We can't linger, move on. Let's behold God with us. Verses 6 and 7. And when we look at verses 6 and 7, I want us to be almost, and maybe not almost, I want us to be shocked at the condescension and humility of the God of the universe who has spoken and everything has come into existence. And you think, oh, he doesn't need to condescend. He doesn't need to be humble. He doesn't need any of that. He's great. He's glorious. He's perfect. God with us. Verses 6 and 7. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Have I done that? No. What have I done? I've just humbly traveled around as a vagabond with my people. And the symbol of my presence, the symbol of my throne, guess what? I'm okay with it being in a tent. Dale Ralph Davis, that wonderful commentator on these Old Testament narrative books, tells what, when I read it, I thought, wow, I can't imagine this happening today in our political climate. He tells a story of a very famous Speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States. That, that speaker, I think, has the notoriety of being the one who served the longest tenure as a House of, uh, Speaker of the House. His name uh, was Sam Rayburn. And Sam Rayburn was the Speaker of the House in Washington in the 40s, in the 50s, and up until 1961. Here's the story that Davis tells about Rayburn. The teenage daughter of a reporter that Rayburn knew died suddenly. 
Y'all think about press conferences now between politicians and reporters and the sort of acrimony between, between the two parties or between the two groups? Teenage daughter of this reporter that Rayburn knew died suddenly. The very next morning, the reporter heard somebody knocking his door. And he gets up, and, and, he, and he's still in a, in a measure of shock. And he goes to the door to see who's knocking on the door. Opens the door, and guess who it is? Speaker of the House of Representatives, Sam Rayburn. And Sam said, I just came by to see what I could do to help you. And the reporter, he's stuttering, he's dumbfounded. He said, uh, there's nothing you can do. We're going to be doing the arrangements at the funeral home today. And Rayburn replied, well, have you had your morning coffee? And the guy said, no, not, not yet. And so Rayburn just comes in. He goes to the kitchen. He starts looking for everything that he needs to make a pot of coffee. And this reporter's dumbfounded. And then as he's watching Rayburn in the kitchen making, trying to make a pot of coffee for he and his, his family, grieving family, it dawned on him what day it was and what time it was. And he knew, because he knew the inner workings of everybody there, you know, these reporters, um, he knew that Rayburn typically on this day, this morning, always had a standing appointment. And, and as he's thinking about that, he says, Mr. Rayburn, um, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. Rayburn replied, I was. But I called the president and I told him I had a friend who was in trouble, that I couldn't make it. Second most powerful man in the United States tells the most powerful man in the United States, sorry, I'm going to a friend who's in need. That's a, I don't know about you. Maybe you're, you're not like, I, I'm getting gushier the older I get. Uh, but, but that story is beautiful. A story of condescension. And Davis then drives home the point. He says, as beautiful a story of condescension and care and concern that was, it's nothing in comparison to these words. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with my people, Israel. Dear ones, behold your God. Here's the New Testament version of that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Behold your wise and behold 
your humble God. How dare there ever be an ounce of pride in any of us? There's one more point I want you to meditate upon this morning. God is above us in His wisdom. God is with us in this mind-boggling and heart-stirring humility. And lastly, God is for us. Say that with me. God is for us. God is for us. God is a God of grace. And verses 8 to 16, it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's the note that keeps sounding. It's the beautiful note we keep hearing. And these are some things we're hearing about the grace of our glorious God. He's going to insist upon it. Verses 5 and 11... He's going to take the initiative. He's going to be gracious. David, it's not your place to start this thing. I'm the one. I'm the one who's blessed you. I'm the one who's blessing you. And I'm the one who's what? Going to bless you. And I'm not doing all that because of something you want to do for me. I'm doing all that. Because for some unfathomable reason, I love you. I remember being in an examination, uh, being in a presbytery meeting when a Korean pastor was being called to a Korean ARP church in Atlanta. I was a student under care back in those days where you, you know, you're a student, you're paying attention to those examinations and all the questions that they ask. Seth, uh, and Seth's already been doing that wonderfully and remarkably. That's what you do as a student. I'm sitting there, and it was one of the most excruciating hours of my life. Why? Because the young man, Korean young man, spoke very little English. And the chief questioner didn't get that. And he's asking this Korean Uh, fellow, all kinds of questions with technical terms, theological technical terms, English theological technical terms. And you could see the poor fellow, he's just, uh, I know this word, I don't know that one, I don't know. You could see the gears turning in his head. And here was the the, the question that is finally, uh, please somebody help. He asked him, um, sir, which comes first? Faith or regeneration? And you could tell that the Korean fellow understood the word faith, the English word faith. But you could also tell he was totally clueless as what this English word regeneration meant. Now that's a basic question that anybody who is going to be a minister in a Reformed Calvinistic church has got to answer. And the guy's struggling. And the examiner, you could tell, he was clueless as to why the guy was struggling. But Dr. J. Adams, who was in that presbytery, figured out what was going on. He said, can, can I ask the question? And, he's, and everybody said, oh, you're, you're Dr. Adams, of course you can ask the question, you know. Uh, and he stood up and asked him, he said, which comes first, faith or new life? 
And when he said that, the guy's eyes flew open wide, smile on his face, new life. New life. And you could tell, automatically you could tell, he gets grace. You are not going to exercise faith if you're dead in your sins. You have to be born again. Regeneration. And when you are born again by the sovereign spirit, then you can do what? Respond in faith. But that faith itself is what? A gift of grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And God is going to be insistent upon that being the case. Also, this grace, there's a pattern for it. You see that in verse 8? And the rest. And it's an anti-pagan pattern. The nations around Israel, the nations around David at this time would have had basically this idea. You had a king, if that king was given, say, if seemingly he was given from a god, victory in a battle, that king would say, oh, I've been blessed by this god. I've been favored by this god. So I will build a what? Temple to this god. And then what was expected was that the God, that God would respond because he's so grateful for what this king has done to honor him, he's going to now favor this king with more blessings. That's the pagan pattern. Notice it ain't the pattern here. It's the pattern in David's mind, but God says, I blessed you before, I'm blessing you now, and I will bless you in the future. And it's not because you've got a good idea about what you want to do for me. As great as that might be, grace upon grace upon grace. That's God's pattern. And then there's the nature of grace. You see this in verses 9 through 11. And if you look closely there in 9 through 11, we see in God's long speech to David, He says, I'm going to bless you. And then he says, and then I'm going to bless Israel. And then he comes back around and says, I'm going to bless you. You see it? If you look at those verses. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place, in verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. And they keep on going into verse 11. And I will give you rest. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God's going to bless David and God's going to bless David. And right in the middle, he's going to bless whom? Israel. And what's the point? Yes, God is going to, desires to, will bless His people, but He will bless His people through an individual. Here it will be David. Next it will be Solomon. But who will God bless His people through ultimately? The greater David, the greater Solomon, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the great prophet, the great priest, the great king, Jesus Christ. God was establishing the Davidic dynasty for the sake of His people. And that's the way God does things. We're so Western. We're so individualized. God desires to bless 
people, groups, families. And he does so through, here's the theological term, a federal head, our representative, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, there's the persistence of grace. You see that in verses 12 through 16. I'll wrap it up quickly. A commentator put it wonderfully. This, this beautiful promised grace, it's, it's persistent. It doesn't let go. It's tenacious. It's undefeatable. It's indefectible. It's unstoppable. And it's, did you notice a word that you kept hearing toward the end? Forever, forever, forever. It's eternal. And the writer puts it this way. That promised grace, death doesn't annul it. David, you can die, but my grace keeps on going. See that in verses 12 and 13. Sin cannot destroy it. And Solomon's going to sin, but that's not going to destroy God's grace. You see that in verses 14 and 15. And time will not exhaust it. And you see that in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, you who are gathered here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, behold your God. Wise, humble, gracious. Infinitely wise, unfathomably humble, sovereignly gracious. Verse 17. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. But guess what, brothers and sisters? Nathan speaking it to you. To you. He doesn't even know you, or didn't even know you. He didn't know he would be speaking this to you. And what he's speaking to you is really deeper than he had a, had a clue of. Because who is he ultimately speaking of? Is he speaking ultimately and finally of David? No. Is he ultimately and finally and totally speaking of Solomon? No. He is ultimately and finally and totally speaking of Jesus. Jesus, the infinitely wise. Jesus, the one who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Jesus, the one who humbled himself upon the cross so that he might pour out upon us what? Grace after grace after grace. I conclude with this story. A Lutheran pastor friend of mine shared it this past week. Sounds contemporary. The story's not. It's from 24 years ago. 24 years ago today, a young lady, she was 18 years old. Her name was Keisha Thomas. Keisha, um, who was 18, she was 18 when the Ku Klux Klan and what we would know of today as neo-Nazis were coming to her hometown. Her hometown was Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they were going to come and do a rally. Okay, you get the picture? Do you know, there's a big college there at Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, I believe it is. And so, once the news got out that this rally was going to happen of these white supremacists, 
protesters, counter-protesters, started pouring in. Hundreds of them. Because they wanted to make sure that the KKK and white supremacists and neo-Nazis knew that they really weren't welcome in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, in the, in, in the midst of that story, one of the, one of the uh, guys in the rally found himself cut off from his fellow white supremacists and found himself in the middle of the ones who were protesting against him. They start chasing him. He falls. And they've got placards in their hands and they're understandably angry. And what do they want to do? Beat him. Keisha saw it. And Keisha, she hears the cries, kill the Nazi. Keisha, an 18-year-old high school student, fearing that that mob mentality had taken over, threw herself down over this man who was there on the ground to protect him from getting beaten. Crying out, you can't beat goodness into a person. In discussing her motivation for her courageous act after the event, she stated, someone had to step out of the pack. Someone had to say, this isn't right. She said, I knew, I know what it means to be hurt. And there are many times that I've been hurt. And when I've been hurt, I hoped someone would stand there and protect me. Violence is violence. Nobody deserves to be hurt, especially not for an idea. Keisha never heard from that man after that day. But a few months later, a young man comes up to her to tell her thanks. He told her that the man she had protected was his father. For Thomas, Keisha, learning that he had a son brought even greater significance to what she had done. She said, for, for the most part, people who hurt, they come from hurt. It's a cycle. And let's say they had killed him or hurt him really bad. How does the son feel? Does he carry on the violence? Student photographer took a photograph, and if you've ever seen it, it's an iconic photograph of her lying on top of him. Everybody gathered around. Oh, by the way, he had SS tattooed on his arm. That, that photographer said something profound. He said, she put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. Who, here's the question, here's the zinger. Who does that in this world? 
Keisha did for that one man. Who does that and even more? Who has done that for even worse? Who has done that, Christian, for you? Please behold your God. Pay attention. A God of wisdom, a God of humility, and a God of grace. Let's pray. Open our hearts, Lord, to see the beauties and the glories of your grace. Impress upon each one here now that we do not deserve it. None of us. Help us to sing your praises with thanksgiving in our heart. Amen.